Our scripture reading this afternoon is two passages from the New Testament. First of all, from Romans 3. Romans 3, 20 through 26. And then from Hebrews chapter 9. I see that some of you will have heard this sermon twice. That's probably not a bad thing. I admit it's a, it's a bit of a technical sermon at times. But you find that too in our scripture passages that we're reading. These are no sort of simple or little things. First of all, from Romans 3, starting at verse 20. There the Apostle Paul writes, For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his, that's God's, sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let's turn to... The letter of letter to the Hebrews towards the end of the New Testament before James and one and two Peter. You'll find Hebrews. Hebrews nine, starting at verse eleven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through that greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved... I should let you know, too, the word for will is the same as the word for covenant. Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent 
and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We are going then to look at the Word of God through the lens of just one question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 14, question and answer 36. There, as we go through the Apostles' Creed, we ask, What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? We answer, He is our mediator, and with His innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Let's sing after the sermon from Psalm 130, stanzas 2 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever personally met a famous person? Maybe you've shaken hands with the Prime Minister. Maybe you've talked to one of the NHL players from around this area. There can be times when maybe you know someone who knows someone and they can introduce you and make a connection for you. Many years ago, the church father Augustine wrestled with this particular question. How can you and I meet God? Who can sort of open up the doors? Who can introduce us to Him? The true God, after all, is holy, holy, holy. So far beyond us. On one level, yes, God is nearer than you can imagine. Because everything continues to depend upon Him. Yet on another level, God is so far The distance between us sinners and the holy God is greater than what spans the universe. Is there anyone that can overcome that distance? Anyone who could give us a favorable introduction into heaven? Augustine then discusses a few options. What about pagan gods? He suggests... I mean, they must know something about heavenly things. But then, says Augustine, this is in his great book, The City of God, those gods are sinful. In fact, says Augustine, behind those gods are actually demons. 
The Apostle Paul makes the same point too with 1 Corinthians 10, 20. It's also in Psalm 106 and other places. The Bible makes it very clear that ancient gods and goddesses were not just figments of an overactive human imagination. There was something spiritual, even demonic, behind them. And that is good to remember too. Also with our Western world's return to paganism. So how can we think, though, that these gods could ever make a favorable introduction for us? Yes, they are spiritual. They know about things that we don't. But they are evil as well. God Most High isn't even going to give them the time of day. Well, then, says Augustine, what, how, about, how about angels? They're not sinful, and they're immensely powerful. Could they introduce us to God? But, says Augustine, angels, they're not like us. They are actually far above us as well. Would you be able to introduce an ant to the queen? Your majesty, here is my friend Woody the ant. Yeah, he's a carpenter ant, of course. Even the idea of that is silly. So how can the likes of you and me truly be connected to God? We need someone who can somehow get into heaven, but yet still be connected to the earth. Well, then look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul uses that word we also find in the Catechism. Mediator. And hopefully you learn in Catechism 2 from Reverend Chase, mediator, among other things, you could think of a mediator as somebody who, who builds a bridge. Finally, in Jesus Christ, there is a bridge, there is a way for man and God to be connected. Now, let me point out the translation of 1 Timothy 2. The ESV has the word uh, men and man. There is one meter between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. But in Greek, it's the word people and the word person, anthropos. We get our words like anthropology from this. My point is that Paul wants to stress here, not so much that the Lord Jesus is male, but that He is truly human. He's truly one of us. He does not just come to this world. He does not just appear to be like us. He truly takes on our flesh and blood. From the Virgin Mary. So that in Him, even though we might be sinners, we can have the confidence of Job. You know that amazing confession that Job makes in the middle in Job 19? In my flesh, I will see God. We will be connected. We will be introduced. That bridge will be built. I've given the sermon this theme. Jesus, the only way to God. 
So the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was one of us. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. There was a group called the Gnostics who taught that Jesus sort of only appeared to be human. And their ideas are opposed in many places in Scripture, in the letters of Paul and John. There was this thought, especially in the ancient world, that our flesh is very inferior. How can the true God, who's greater than we can imagine, become like one of us in flesh and blood? God is far too holy for that. Our flesh. Isn't that the source of so many problems? They didn't know about hormones in the ancient world, but I'm sure they would have added that to the list. Your flesh. Do you want to get rid of your flesh? It would be so much better if you didn't have this flesh. The body is a prison of the soul. No, we confess with Scripture. Great is the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16 He was manifest, He appeared in the flesh. It's highlighted by the Apostle Paul. Certainly, it's a great mystery that the Creator would become a creature. But that is just the thing the God of wonders would do. But we need to go further than that. Why does the Son of God take on our flesh? Why does God lower Himself so far? It's not simply to amaze us. It's even more than just to show us that He knows what it's like to be one of us or something like that. It was so that the mediator could take our place, carry our sins, and die for us. Paul says in Romans 8.3, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He, God, condemned sin in the flesh. Flesh, repeated, repeated twice there. So, Christmas. Yes, we're already thinking about that. Christmas, how wonderful it is. Christmas can never be sort of considered in and of itself. Christmas has to make us think of Good Friday and then also Easter. One pastor puts it like this. The Lord Jesus took on our flesh so that there was flesh to be spat upon. So that there would be a back that could be whipped. So that there would be blood that could be shed, so that our flesh could be nailed to a cross as we deserve in our sins. Look at how we answer in our catechism. What benefit is the holy conception and birth of Christ? Right away, how do we answer? He is our mediator. So right away in our catechism, even when we're considering the conception and the birth of Christ, we put it under this heading. Mediator. 
This is what his whole life is going to be about. Also his birth. The one who builds that bridge, who reconciles us to the God who is holy, holy, holy. There will be none of the fluff that you sometimes hear about the incarnation. That in Jesus, God comes down to us on our level or heard once. That in the incarnation, God shows that all humanity is valuable. All that talk misses the point. Jesus is our mediator. He takes on our flesh so that he can take our place. He is conceived and born in this unique way. Holiness is upon him right from day one. Because sin is upon us right from day one. What do you and I need after all? If we are to be reconciled again to the holy God. Will you confess with me that things are bad? I have been a sinner right from the first moment of my existence. I sin because sin is a part of my very nature. As David says in Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And this is part of David's great confession of sin. You think it would be one thing for David to confess what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. But this is the depths of it. That David says, I didn't just sort of stumble into sin because I, I saw a woman bathing. You know, my whole life, right from the start, has been nothing but me, myself, and I, where my sinful desires rule. And so in the presence of the Holy God, we need an immense covering. We need to be covered completely, from head to toe, from thought to action, from the first day to the last day of our lives. And this idea, too, that we need a covering is also a central part of the Word of God. Perhaps you know of this debate that in Bible translation in the New Testament, there's sometimes a debate between whether something can be translated with the word propitiation or the word expiation. The RSV, if you can remember that, like me, often had the word expiation. Now the ESV always has the word propitiation. And we've changed the Belgian Confession in Article 14 so that now there is the word propitiation. Now what is the difference, though, between those two words? Expiation and propitiation. Well, propitiation, that has this idea of taking away anger. And that's a very good thing to stress, that God is rightly angry over our sins. If we are to be saved, propitiation needs to be made. 
It's good to put that in the Delegate Confession, Article 14, absolutely. The word expiation, though, that means more mm, to erase, remove debt, or to cover over sin so that it's not offensive. When you expiate, you wipe something out away. It's a little bit too bad that the ESV and other translations no longer use the word expiation at all. It's always propitiate or propitiation. It is undoubtedly true in the Bible that expiation is also what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He wipes away our sin with his blood. He covers over our sin. He takes away their debt and their condemnation. Hebrews 2.17 says, so that he might become a merciful high priest and faithful high priest to, well, propitiate the sins of the people? That doesn't make sense. You don't propitiate sins. You propitiate someone who's angry about sin. The better word here is to expiate the sins of the people. And let's get just a bit more technical. Because all of this translates a family of Greek words that's very hard to capture with sort of one English word. And if you were to look at, for instance, Romans 3, the passage that we read, and compare it to all sorts of Bible translations, you would see there's many different translations as there are Bible translations. But yet you do know, maybe not the ins and outs of the Greek language, but you know the background to what Paul is talking about in Romans 3. Because the word that he uses there and we'll get to where it is in a moment, is the same word for, or similar to, mercy seat, or atonement cover. You know, in the Old Testament, God told Moses to make an ark. It was just Noah who had to make an ark. This is a different ark, of course. You know that ark that was three feet long, and two and a half feet tall or so, and about a foot and a half wide, you can read about it in Exodus 25. It was to be made of acacia wood, which I learned is not only plentiful in the wilderness, in the desert, it's also practically indestructible. Our locust tree is actually named after it. Acacia wood, for you woodworkers, is over one and a half times harder than hard maple. No carpenter ants here. The ark was to be something solid. The ark was to be overlaid entirely with pure gold. It was to have a gold molding around the rim of it. And then there was a golden lid that was to be put over top of it. And that lid is called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And there were two models of cherubim too with their wings stretched out on either end, also of gold. This atonement cover, that was the place where the high priest would deal with the sins of the people of God. 
expiate them. Blood was sprinkled on it. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year, sprinkled seven times. You can only imagine, if the Israelites were faithful in keeping the Day of Atonement, the amount of blood that would build up over this mercy scene. Well, then look at Romans chapter 3. Because what does Paul say there? Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short. Verse 24, We are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And maybe you can guess what Paul sort of more literally says. Young's literal translation whom God did set forth as a mercy seat. That's what that word propitiation is. Atonement cover. What Paul means is that finally in the Lord Jesus Christ, God provides an even greater mercy seat, atonement cover, than was present in the Old Testament. That lid of the ark. A golden lid yet covered with blood and more blood and more blood was in this amazing way a shadow, a a promise of so much more. The Holy Son of God, but also bloodied and crucified that our sins might be taken away. And now add this. It is that ark that has the mercy seat over it. In the furnishings of the the temple, the mercy seat is not something else. You know, like the, the burnt offering, the altar for burnt offering or something like that. It's part of the ark. And the ark is the place of the special presence of the Lord. You can read it in a few places in the Old Testament. I, the Lord, will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Leviticus 16.2. Or in Exodus 25.22, God says to Moses, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And there are many other passages like that. Where does God appear? in the midst of his people. Where is his gracious and loving presence in this broken and fallen world? It is at the ark. And only at the mercy seat above it is at the place where sin is atoned for. Do you then see the amazing promise that we have as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We who believe in Jesus have a mercy seat, not built by human hands. A mercy seat put forward by God Himself. 
We who believe in Jesus Christ then can have this confidence that our sins have been expiated. God has been propitiated. Because our sins are covered, we are also covered with the love and the grace of God. We are justified and sanctified instead of that sin which so clings to you, which is on you from the moment that you are conceived. No, now what clings to you is the holiness of another, the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of Him, what clings to you is even the presence of God Himself. In the Catechism, we footnote another passage from Hebrews, from chapter 9. There, we read it, the author talks about cleansing, how important it is, how you do receive it. He says in the Old Testament, blood was shed to cleanse and to purify, the blood of goats and bulls and more. He points out that was all of a, a sign, a shadow of so much more. How much more would the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You and I need cleansing. We are terribly unclean. We who are sinful from even the moment we are conceived. Priests were unclean in the Old Testament. If they touched a dead body, that excluded them from serving at the temple. We have it worse than that, though, because we don't just touch dead bodies, we touch dead works, our, our sins. Right from the moment we are born. Sin that brings such decay and death, that is upon us. But now there is a cleansing for us in Jesus Christ so that we may serve the living God, we read in Hebrews. Do you know what that word serve means? You need to understand that in the flow of Scripture. Serve here means you have been brought into the temple of God. You now are a priest. And you can be busy with the worship of God in the presence of God. You and I, we ought to be as sinners. We are like lepers. We should be calling out, unclean, unclean. Get away from me. But in Jesus Christ, we may say, we have been brought near, near to God even. We can serve Him in all of life. What should be our response to this? In the book of Hebrews, you also find that we have warnings. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We have everything that the Old Testament only pointed to. We have the fulfillment of it all. Well, that goes both ways. 
Because in the Old Testament, even there, there was also judgment. Even the people of God delivered out of Egypt. Judgment so often fell upon them. God sends a plague or something like that because of His people's disobedience, because of their murmuring. You might call it the book of Numbers. Not just the numbers of the Israelites, but the number of plagues, judgments, on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, on, on the faithless spies, on the people time and time again. And we have something even more precious than they did. Angels were involved then. The author of Hebrews. Somehow angels too were part of the giving of the law of Moses. Well, have we been blessed by the work of angels? No, so much more. We know the work of the Son of God who came Himself, took on our flesh and blood to mediate, to then sprinkle His blood upon us that we sinners might be covered with His own perfect life and bitter death. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Amen.